We are in the book of Hebrews. We've been going through the book of Hebrews now together since uh, last fall. We are about halfway through with the number of sermons we're going to do. We're actually over halfway through uh, the content of the text. We're in chapter 8, and today we're actually going to take on an entire chapter. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, which includes a very long quotation from the book of Jeremiah, which we looked at last week. What I'd like to do is I'd like to read this passage. I'd like to pray. And then I'd like to spend some time unpacking these words together as we see what God wants to teach us today. Read along with me, if you would, from Hebrews chapter eight. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." <clears throat> And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church. Father God, we are thankful so much that you are doing new things in our lives as individuals, in our families, and yes, God, even in this church. God, we thank you that throughout the course of history, throughout eternity, God, you have always had a plan to rescue and redeem broken and sinful people like us. And we thank you, God, that you point to that plan reaching its final consummation in Jesus. We thank you, God, that we get to live now in the shadow of the cross. We get to live seeing that plan come to fruition in Jesus. And I just pray today, Lord God, for those of my friends who are here today who are Christians, may we rejoice more greatly in the grace that we have received. And God, for any of my friends here today who are not yet Christians, I pray that they would see the incredible offer of love and forgiveness and grace that they've been extended in this new covenant through Jesus and that their hearts would be stirred to accept this offer, to take you up on this offer of the new covenant. God, I ask for all of us, would you give us soft and teachable hearts that we might learn from your word? Uh, God, for myself, would you help me to teach with truthfulness and with clarity? And God, in particular, I just ask that you'd help my voice to make it through this sermon and that God, I would be able to uh, just have the, the strength to be able to speak what it is you've laid on my heart to share today. We ask that you'd send the Holy Spirit right now to bring these words to life in our hearts and in our minds. We pray all this in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. I wanna, I wanna conduct a, a miniature poll. This is not scientific, but I wanna ask a question. Now, I'm gonna categorize you in, in two broad categories. Some of you like and embrace new things. Some of you like and embrace change. And some of you are resistant to change. You dig your heels in when it comes time to change. So self-assessment, you had a moment to think about it. How many of you would say that you are the type of person who likes change? Raise your hand. You actually like this right now. We're doing something new. We're doing a poll in service. This is great. 
The others of you, you don't like change. This is new. This is different. You're already digging your heels in. You don't necessarily like change. Raise your hands. All right, that's more of you. That's more of you. Great. This is going to go well for me today. You know, we, sometimes we argue about change and is newer better or is older better, better. Sometimes we have these arguments, you know, old school is better, right? Old school is better. You know, old cars are better and old cameras are better and the music of Led Zeppelin is way better than the music of One Direction, right? Like that's categorically true. We just know that to be true. <laughs> Self-evident. Older is better, right? Then there's like, well, no, newer is better. You know, like I was watching a documentary recently on the 60s and, and the space race and the, the computation power, the computers that they had to send people to the moon. It is just ludicrous to think that you and I all have more computational power in our smartphones, in our pockets than they sent people to the moon, right? Medical technology is better now. I don't want to go old school. If I have to go get surgery, I want, I want new. Give me whatever is going to work the best, right? We get into these arguments about is older better, is newer better? Actually, something interesting as I was studying this week, I came across an article from 2005 in the uh, magazine Fast Company. An author named Alan Deutschman actually turned this article into a full book. And, and, and it was basically talking about people who were faced with the need to make a really significant change. He used the example of, of um, cardiac patients, people who had a really serious heart disease. And when the doctors looked at them and they said, if you do not make lifestyle changes, you will die. It's kind of a change or die sort of situation. And the other example they used was in business. If your business doesn't change, your business will die. You're going to shut down and die. And this author looked at these kind of two examples and statistics. And, and he said, you know what the statistics shown? That when faced with a change or die sort of situation, only one out of every nine people actually made the change that was necessary. That's pretty startling, isn't it? He talked about how the, 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 the keys for the people who actually changed, they needed more than just facts. They needed a, an emotional or even a spiritual reason why to make that change. He talked about how people who, who actually did the change, they did better with radical and sweeping change, like a whole new change as opposed to just little small incremental steps. And number three, he talks about how the people who walked out their change the best were those who continued a lifestyle of learning. They learned maybe a new language. They learned how to play a new instrument. He said those people actually did the best when it came through change. Found that very fascinating. I think it's, I think it's actually true that more people, we saw in our little informal poll here, more of you said you're resistant to change, you don't like change. And I think that the statistics would show that some of you who raised your hand and said you like change, you don't actually like change that much. You're either self-deceived or you're lying and this is church and so we need to deal with that, right? <laughs> we very often don't like change. We very often don't like new. We get stuck in our ways. Now, the author of Hebrews today is gonna speak about a new covenant that God is offering, a new way of God relating to his people. But contextually, we need to understand that in the book of Hebrews, there's a couple of things going. First of all, the book of Hebrews is a sermon that was then turned into a letter and it was written by an anonymous author. We don't really know who wrote the letter of the Hebrews, this, this sermon that God wrote, we called it. But we know that the, the intended recipients, the first hearers of this letter were very well versed in the Old Testament covenant practices, rituals, stories, etc. The, the author of Hebrews quotes extensively from the Old Testament. He's using all sorts of references and all sorts of language from, from the Mosaic covenant to try to make his points. And so we know that the listeners were familiar with those things. The other thing we know is that the original hearers were faced with persecution, we're going to see this more when we get to chapter 10, but the author of Hebrews says things like, you've even had your houses plundered, that they're facing hardships very likely because they're following Jesus. They're, they're following this Messiah, this new group who are saying that all of the promises of God made in the Old Testament have come true in Jesus. And what, what Bible scholars and commentators almost unanimously agree upon is because these people are so familiar with the Old Testament and because they are facing persecution for following Jesus, they are retreating and running backwards into the Old Covenant practice rituals, and routines that they were much more familiar with. How many of us could say that that's actually true for us as well? When we're faced with hardship, our tendency is to run back into what's comfortable, 
easy and familiar instead of pushing through and making the change that is so often desperately needed. And in this passage today, we really are seeing a a change or die type of situation. The author of Hebrews makes absolutely no bones about it. He says this old covenant is passed away. This old covenant has grown obsolete. There is a new covenant that God has given to us and we have to make this change. And I think that obviously this is the, the, the biggest possible change that God could ever do uh, in the course of human history, this, this massive and sweeping change of a new covenant written in Jesus' blood. But I think there are uh, a thousand smaller points of application for you and for me. I actually think this is an incredibly timely word for us as a church, even as we face a season in just a few short weeks of change and of transition for us as a church, moving out of this facility, moving into a new facility, having new rhythms, all of these sorts of things. I believe that there's a timeliness to this word. And so I would just simply ask you today, if you feel like as I'm reading these these words or as I'm kind of setting up these ideas, if you feel like there's any of these kind of walls of defensiveness or your heels being dug in at all, I just encourage you and challenge you to ask the Holy Spirit to help you to lower those walls down that you might be willing to embrace whatever change God has in front of you not only for us corporately as a church, but for you individually. Because I believe that God is always leading us from from one degree of glory to another, that there's always a, a, a new thing or a better thing that God wants to do in our lives individually and yes, in our lives as a church, ultimately resulting in the eternal weight of glory that he's promised for us. And so I simply ask you just to open your heart up to be willing to see if God is gonna prompt you for areas in your life where, need, where there's change needed. Now, with that said, let's talk about this new covenant. We're going to start back with the idea of Jesus, our great high priest, back in verse one. This is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, the point in what we're saying is this. Now, I like that. That helps me in my sermon prep a lot. When the author says, here's the point, like, ooh, I got it. Here we go. The point in what we are saying is this. This is the whole point that he's been driving at. We have such a high priest. The author of Hebrews, like, like any preacher, has taken some twists and taken some turns, gotten off on some rabbit trails. We've spent a lot of time talking about Melchizedek, this, that, and the other thing. But here he makes it absolutely clear. The point is this. Jesus is our high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Again, for those of us who who, who are 21st century Westerners, the idea of a high priest is somewhat foreign to us. And again, if maybe you're new or you've recently joined with us, this is something we've covered uh, in pretty great detail in, in recent weeks and months. And so I don't want to rehash it at length here, but let me just simply remind you that a high priest is incredibly important. In the old covenant, the high priest is the one that would offer sacrifices for sins. And if you wanted to know that you were spiritually okay, you had to know that the high priest had done his work. How do you know that your sins are forgiven? The high priest has offered the sacrifices. How do you know that you're loved by God? The high priest says that the sacrifice has been accepted by God. How do you know that you're okay? It's the high priest. What the author of Hebrews has been saying for for multiple chapters now is, under this new covenant, we have an even better high priest. His name is Jesus. Do you want to know that your sins are forgiven? You look to Jesus. You want to know that you're loved by God? You look to Jesus. Unlike the high priests in the old covenant who would serve for a while and then die, this high priest serves forever. He's never going to be replaced. He's never going to get voted out of office. He is a permanent high priest, one that offers us the ultimate assurance of our forgiveness. And there's a couple of things that are really interesting in here. First of all, he says that that this high priest is seated, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Friends, what does seated mean? He's, he's, he's sitting down because the work is done. The work is done. All of the sacrifice that needed to be made for us to have forgiveness of sin has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. When Jesus was on the cross being crucified, what did he cry out with a loud voice? It is finished. Friends, 
There is no need for our good works to add to the sacrifice of Jesus, the work that he has already done on the cross. Jesus Christ has accomplished it all. And now we are free when we do good works. We're free to do good works as loving, obedient response to Jesus, but never in an attempt to earn our salvation. It is finished. Our high priest has done all of the work necessary for our salvation. That ought to give you a great deal of confidence. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. But there's a tension in this verse. It's interesting. Verse two, it says he's a minister in the holy places. A minister in the holy places. Well, wait a minute. If he's, is he ministering in the holy places or is he seated? And, and the author of Hebrews would say, yeah. Like those biblical tensions, sometimes a little bit of a bull fan. Here, here's what this means. This means that right now, today, if you are a Christian, the ongoing work of Jesus on your behalf is happening in heaven right now. It means for those of you who who have sinned recently, maybe even sinned this morning on your way to church, Jesus is in the presence of God the Father saying, nope, my blood paid for that one as well. Nope, my my blood paid for that one as well. Did you know that Jesus is praying for us? Did you know that Jesus is is offering works of intercession on our behalf right now? Isn't that good news? Isn't that great news? That that the work is done. There's no more work needed to accomplish redemption, but the outworking of that, the daily ongoing outworking of that is still happening right now. And Jesus is our high priest and he is perfect in that role. This actually brings up an interesting point because it says that he's, he's a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And what that means is, it means that Jesus is in heaven right now. And he's doing this work on our behalf in heaven. I remember when I was a kid, I was having a conversation, I believe it was with my parents. I'm pretty sure it was with my dad, actually. And then I said something to the effect of, boy, wouldn't it be great if Jesus was still physically present here on earth and we could see him and we could talk to him and we could walk with him the way that the disciples did that we read about in the gospels. Anybody ever had that thought? Anybody ever had that feeling? And I remember my dad said to me, and it stuck with me ever since. He goes, actually, that would be cool, but it's better that Jesus is in heaven. We like to talk about the death of Jesus on the cross. We love to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, that he didn't stay dead. But I think for myself and for many churches, especially in America, we don't talk about the ascension of Jesus enough and just how important of a doctrine that is. And so I wanna take just a minute and explain to you four reasons why the ascension is really good news for us. And the first is this, because of the ascension, Jesus is now a permanent link between heaven and earth. Jesus is now a permanent link between heaven and earth. The Bible uses the terms heaven and earth to describe God's domain and and our domain. I don't don't intend to sound too science fiction-y, but but it's almost like God's uh, dimension and our dimension. We see in the earliest pages of the Bible that God and man dwelled together in, in unity and in harmony, but because of sin, that relationship was severed, that man was cast out of the garden, and now there's a great distance between heaven and earth. But the Bible speaks about heaven as, as God's throne room. It's almost like God's control room where he can sit and, and really run the universe from heaven. And in, in, in heaven and earth being separated, God's always been talking about this plan to restore the unity between heaven and earth. We see this through the prophets. We actually see this in the last pages of the book of the Bible. In, in, in Revelation, it talks about a city coming down from heaven, heaven and earth being one, the dwelling place of God being with man, that, that God's restoration project is heaven and earth being brought together again. And in the meantime, while heaven and earth are still distinct, but maybe overlapping, there are these points of connection between heaven and earth. I'll give you an example. You guys remember in the book of Genesis when um, Jacob, is, he's, he's running away from his brother. They've had, they've had some fights. Jacob cheated his brother out of his birthright. He's running away. He's scared for his life. It says he goes, he falls asleep at night. He puts his head on a rock to use a rock as a pillow. And then he has a dream. What does he have a dream about? 
the, the, the ladder, right? The stairway to heaven. Speaking of Led Zeppelin earlier, right? He, he's, he's having this dream of this, this stairway to heaven and it shows these angels coming up and down, going up and down between heaven and earth. And, and what God is showing Jacob is that God's going to use Jacob and his family to be a connection, a bridge between heaven and earth. When you fast forward to the tabernacle, you fast forward to the temple, there's this section of the temple, the most holy place. You, you can't go there. Only the high priest could go there. And the way that they would think about it is when the high priest would go into that most holy place, the holiest of holy places, that he was quite literally entering into heaven. It's where the presence of God is. And so this temple is the connecting point between heaven and earth. But now in Jesus, but now in Jesus, because Jesus has ascended to heaven, he is the permanent connection point between heaven and earth. The apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 1.20. He says that, God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Christ is seated in heavenly places. And if you fast forward just a few verses to chapter two, verse six, it says that Christ raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Is that good news? That, that not only is Jesus in heavenly places, but all of us who trust in him are seated with Christ in heavenly places. The ascension means that we have a direct connection to heaven. Or as 1 Timothy 2 says, there's only one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all. So the ascension means that that dividing wall between heaven and earth is being broken down. And Jesus is a permanent link. The second thing that the ascension means is that now we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. This is actually one of the things that, that Jesus directly said. This was the verse that my dad was quoting to me when I was a kid. Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. He says, it's actually better for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the helper, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In the old covenant, the people of God had the Holy Spirit, but, but it was a very different sort of relationship that people had with the Holy Spirit. I've been reading the book of Judges lately, studying it in depth, and we see, like, for example, these different judges, the Holy Spirit would come upon them in power, they would fight some battle, win some major accomplishment, and then the Holy Spirit would, would kind of leave. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit would work in the lives of the people temporarily and, and not widespread. It was only a few select individuals. But one of the great promises of the new covenant is that God would pour out his Holy Spirit on all people who believe. Are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus? Then you have the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit, get this, the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in your very bodies. Let that help you. Let that strengthen you the next time that Satan's trying to put some bait on a hook. You say, I actually can say no to that because I have the Holy Spirit of God living within me. I don't need to take the bait on that hook. I don't need to say yes to ungodliness. I can say yes to Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm not going to have a voice at the end of this sermon. I can tell already. Here's the third thing. Because we have the Holy Spirit, the ascension is good because it means that the earthly ministry of Jesus can now be expanded and continue through us. During his earthly ministry, Jesus was bound to one location at any one given time. He was in Jerusalem. He was in Bethsaida. He was in Galilee. But now we, the body of Christ, the people of God who are filled with the Spirit can actually serve all places at all times. Think about this. There is the earthly ministry of Jesus happening right now in Shoreline, Washington, because you and I are here, and many other Christians. I don't, I don't, I don't know what Jesus would say if he was going to put together a list of cities that he would visit if he was still physically present on earth. I don't know that Shoreline would make it in his top 100 list. Jesus is like, hey, I've created places like Honolulu. Like, you should check that out. <laughs> But guess what? The earthly ministry of Jesus is still happening right now. You're filled with the Spirit. You can go be the hands and feet of Jesus. You can go be a physical representation of Jesus here on earth to somebody who's in need, serving the poor, loving the needy and the broken, 
ministering the gospel, sharing the good news. Because Jesus is in heaven, he has now poured out the Holy Spirit and his earthly ministry has actually expanded. John 14, 12, Jesus said as much. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I, because I am going to the Father. So because Jesus has ascended into heaven, you and I are now empowered for the work of the ministry and Jesus said, you'll actually do greater things than he did. Isn't that remarkable? And number four, Jesus' ascension is good news because it means not only is his earthly ministry expanding, but his heavenly ministry continues for us. Hebrews 7.25, he always lives to make intercession for them. We read this a few weeks back in our study of Hebrews chapter seven. He's always making intercession for us. Even though the work is done and he is seated, he continues his priestly work on our behalf. And like I said earlier, all of the sins that we continue to struggle with, all of our old nature that, that tries to rear its ugly head, Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm still dealing with that. I'm still working on that right now in heaven. Church, the ascension is very good news. The ascension is very good news. And it's important for us to remember that not only did Jesus live, not only did he die, not only did he rise again, but he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we now have the Holy Spirit because of that. That's our high priest, now notice what the author of Hebrews said. He said that, that Jesus is a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. And so he's gonna continue this theme here in verse four, this idea about the true tent. Verse four, now if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all. That's actually another reason. If Jesus were here on earth, he wouldn't be a priest because he doesn't qualify according to the law since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. We already looked at that a while before about all the, the legal requirements to be a priest. They, these, these human priests, they serve a copy and a, what's the word, Sound City? A shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. When we, when we talked about the tabernacle, the tent, or the temple, what he's saying is they received a picture from God. It was like a blueprint, it's like a, like a photocopy of a blueprint saying, hey, this is what heaven's like. Set up the tabernacle this way and it will teach you about what heaven is like. But the author of Hebrews is also making this point here. Remember the context. He's saying, look, Jesus is our high priest. He's ministering in heaven itself right now. You don't need to run backwards to these high priests that are ministering in the earthly temple because that's just a copy and it's just a shadow of the permanent things. Let me give you an illustration. This is not a perfect illustration, but none of them ever are. But I think it's a helpful illustration. Let's, let's say that I want it to be a real blessing to one of my daughters. Summer is coming up. It's about time to really get out, you know, out of school, out in the neighborhood, enjoy the sunshine that we know is coming. And so I tell my daughter, I'm going to buy you a really nice new bike. And this isn't gonna be a bike. This isn't gonna be, you know, something we pick up at a garage sale or a swap meet. I'm gonna give you a really nice bike. We're gonna go buy it brand new. You get to pick out the colors. We'll make sure it, it works really well. And so before we get this bike, that's gonna be in a few months when summer happens, here is, I tear out of the catalog. Here's a picture of the bike. I want you to have this picture of this bike. And every day, my wonderful, adoring daughter wakes up and she looks at the picture. She's got it pinned to her wall. I'm like, that's my bike. That's the bike I'm gonna get. I'm so excited about this bike. She brings it with her to the breakfast table. She's just looking at it. This is amazing. Day after day goes by. She's more and more excited about the bike. And then one day she wakes up and sitting there on the front porch is the new bike. And she goes, oh, dad, thank you so much. And she walks off with the picture of her bike and just continues to stare at it. I love this bike. It's so amazing. You'd think that kid has something wrong with her, right? Kid's got a screw loose. What the author of Hebrews is saying is something similar. He's saying, look, the tabernacle, the temple, these are all just a picture, a copy, a shadow of things that are yet to come. Think about what a shadow is. A shadow looks kind of like something, but it's, but it's two-dimensional and it's monochromatic, right? Any of you, any of you do shadow puppets? Don't raise your hand. It'd be very embarrassing if you knew how to do shadow puppets, right? They, they, they just, they look kind of like something. You can do something with your hands. It kind of looks like a bunny or it kind of looks like a dog. Obviously, I don't. I'm like crumpling up paper here or something. 
you do, a, you do a shadow puppet, it kind of almost sort of looks like something, but nobody wants to see a shadow of, of a dog when you could actually have a real puppy. It's that big of a difference, but, but even more, even more. The author of Hebrews is saying the tabernacle and the temple, all of that is just a shadow of the reality. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. When, 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 when the author of Hebrews starts talking about these things being a copy and a shadow the first covenant being not the reality, the new covenant being the reality, there's a couple of ditches that we need to watch out for. There's a, there's a couple of places where we could go as Christians, and I want to warn us about them. The first would be this, undervaluing the old covenant symbols. I have heard Christians, and I've probably even in my past been guilty of saying things kind of like this, you know, oh, you know, thank God we're under the old covenant, all those terrible, boring laws, all that awful stuff, all those awful rituals, ugh, blood sacrifices, ugh, food laws. Ugh. And we, we, we speak in a very dismissive and, and denigrating sort of way about the old covenant, the covenant that God gave under Moses. Let me ask you, was the covenant that God gave through Moses a gift of his grace? You better believe it. You better believe that God's law, his covenant through Moses was a gift of his grace. And, and, and although it was temporary, although it had areas where it didn't, it didn't um, bring to completion the whole redemption project of God, I would caution us as new covenant believers, especially the, the majority of us being non-Jewish, let's be guarded and be careful with how we speak about these old covenant symbols. Let's not denigrate the good gifts that God gave to his people. Amen? And I think that's probably the ditch where more of us would tend to go. However, there are others um, where I've seen, particularly among people in my generation, maybe who weren't as familiar with the Bible. I think some of you who are, are, are older generations grew up in a time where people were more familiar with the Bible. My generation has been much less familiar with the Bible when they discover these things in the Old Testament. They think, oh, this is really cool. And look at all these food laws and look at all these holidays and look at all these things. And then there becomes like an over-attachment to the old covenant symbols. And, 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 and I'll, I'll give you an extreme example of, of one group that I've known a friend of a friend who actually was starting to work with a team to rebuild all of the emblems of worship so that when Jesus returns for his millennial kingdom, they could reinstitute animal sacrifices in the temple. And if that doesn't creep you out, it ought to, because that's blasphemous. Because the sacrifice that Jesus offered was once and for all, and we're not gonna reinstitute animal sacrifices in the temple upon the return of Jesus. We're not gonna, throughout eternity, be singing worthy as the law, we're gonna be singing worthy as the lamb. So I just offer that to you. I don't know which, which ditch you tend towards. Let's not speak dismissively or, or rudely or, or pejoratively of these good gifts of God. Yet at the same time, let's not overly latch onto them and recognize that they were put in place for a season. They were put in place for a time to point us to the fulfillment whose name is Jesus. Rant over. Okay. Now, like I said, this first covenant was temporary. And yes, it was given by God directly, but God himself said that it's going to be temporary. And the author of Hebrews is gonna answer this. He's gonna explain this by quoting extensively from the prophet Jeremiah, a passage we looked at last week. Let, let me just say this. Before I read through this, I'm gonna read these verses unbroken. I wanna say one thing before we read through these, these next six or seven verses. And it's the idea of covenant. Again, if some of you are new, we've unpacked the idea of covenant at great length in, in recent weeks and months. But just by way of reminder, a covenant is a formal agreement. It's a way that two people or more people can relate to each other. And so we talk about this first covenant and this new covenant. We're talking about ways in which God has offered to relate to his people. And so that's what we're talking about when we read this passage about covenant. Let me read through these verses straight through with minimal commentary. Verse six, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. I love that phrase. Verse seven, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, just pause for a moment. That would have been striking to the hearers. Whoa, are you saying the first covenant had faults? For he finds fault with them when he says, 
Behold, the days are coming. Now he's quoting from Jeremiah. He's quoting from a prophet who spoke 600 years before the time of Jesus. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Then the author of Hebrews finishes with this thought. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete in growing old is ready to vanish away. You have to remember that word obsolete would also be very striking to the first hearers. What are you saying? The law of Moses is obsolete? But I like what he says. He, he doesn't just say that this law is obsolete or have fault. He says, no, God's given us better promises. And so let me just highlight for you five of these promises. What is, what is better about these, this new covenant, these better promises that God has given to us? And the first one is simply this. It's the new covenant is a faultless and permanent covenant. A faultless and permanent covenant. Again, when it talks about in verse seven, he finds fault with them. That would be upsetting. These are good Jewish people. They love the law of the Lord. In fact, the Bible itself says that the law of the Lord is perfect. How can you say that it has faults? I do not believe that the author of Hebrews is saying that the law of the Lord or the first covenant has faults in the sense that God messed up, but he's saying that it's faulted in the sense that it can't get us to the goal of perfection. It doesn't serve the right, it doesn't serve the purpose of getting us to the final day of completion where we're made perfect in Christ Jesus. We need a new and a better covenant. Let me give you another example that I think will help you understand what I'm talking about here. In Galatians chapter three, the apostle Paul refers to the law as a guardian or some translations would, would put it as a schoolmaster. The word in the Greek is related to our word pedagogy for, for instruction or a teacher. So what he's saying is this. He's saying the law is a, a schoolmaster. It's a teacher. It's an instructor that was to serve a certain purpose for a certain amount of time. But when we're brought to maturity in the time of Christ Jesus, we no longer need the schoolmaster. Let me, let me ask you a question. How many of you, when you were in grade school, learned how to write using one of those big, fat, stubby pencils and using that paper with the extra wide lines and the dotted line going down the middle? How many of you use that, right? How many of you still use that today? There's a few of you. I've seen your handwriting. There's a few of you who probably need to, myself included. But see, we use those big, fat, stubby pencils and we use that wide-lined paper not because at the end of the day that's how you're going to write, but because it's a, a teaching tool, a big, fat object lesson to show us how to write. But when maturity comes, your teacher gives you college-lined paper and an ink pen and says, now you have to put those principles into practice. I, I'm convinced that when, when Paul speaks of, uh, in Galatians 3 about the law being a schoolmaster, what he means is all of these things in the Old Covenant are a big, fat object lesson for us. Yes to this, no to that. Yes to God's way, no to, no to ungodliness. Yes to eating these types of animals. No to not eating those types of animals. Why? Is it because God really cared about being, what animals were eaten or not? No, but because God wants to know if we're gonna be the kind of people that will say, God, I trust you and I wanna follow your ways. So the law is a schoolmaster. The law is an instructor. It served to get us up to a certain point, but now in the fullness of time, God has sent his son Jesus to bring us into maturity. And now perfection is actually possible in Christ Jesus and the covenant that he has given to us. That's good news. That's really good news. So we have better promises because we have a new covenant that's faultless and permanent. Number two, this new covenant is better because it's unbreakable an unbreakable covenant. If you notice in verse nine, it says, they did not continue in my covenant. If you read the Old Testament, it's just one story after another, after another, after another of people breaking the covenant of God, of failing to live up to their end of the bargain. God says, you will follow me. You will worship only me. I will be your God. I will take care of you. 
but the people didn't live up to their end of the bargain. You know what's amazing as you read through this prophecy from Jeremiah, as you read through what God is promising, notice how all of the action is being done by God. He says, I will make a new covenant. I will put my laws in your hearts. I will write them on your minds. I will be your God. I will forgive your sins and I will remember your iniquities no more. God is saying, I'm going to take all of my end of the bargain that I've kept and I'm gonna take all of your end of the bargain that you failed to keep. I'm gonna take both upon myself in Jesus. And in Jesus, the entirety of the covenant has been kept. Jesus never broke God's law once. And even though you and I to this day continue to struggle with sin and we do break God's law, if you are in Christ, God looks at you as though you were a covenant keeper like Jesus. That's how God relates to us. That's how God loves us. That's how much our salvation is secured. It's an unbreakable covenant. I am so thankful that my relationship with God is not contingent upon my works. Do I get an amen from anybody this morning? And even though we stumble, and even though, yes, our sins are displeasing to God, we incur the displeasure of a loving father who's committed to helping us grow. We do not incur the displeasure of one who's going to kick us out because God doesn't unadopt his sons and his daughters. We're part of an unbreakable covenant. If you're in Christ, this covenant's better. It's not like the one that God made with the, the people of Israel who continually broke the covenant. Number three, this covenant is better because it's a heart-transforming covenant. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Again, under the first covenant, under Moses, we had to look externally. God, God wants heartfelt obedience. How many of you are parents? You really want your children to obey you from a, a sincere heart. How many of you like that, right? Like, go clean your room. You're like, you know what, mom? I would love to do that because I know it would be a blessing to you. I will go clean my room, right? Uh-huh. As opposed to the fine that we sometimes get, right? If we could do something in the hearts of our children to make them obey from that pure heart, we would. But we can't because we're human and they're humans. I was gonna say demons, but they're humans. Um, just kidding. We love our children here, but, but it's a, such a good object lesson for us many times of how God, just imagine the frustration that God must feel for us, but what God says is, I actually can do something about it. Whereas you and I as parents, we can't go inside of their hearts and we can't do that change. God actually can. God actually can. God actually can go inside of us and by the, by the Holy Spirit that he's put in us, rewire our hearts, rewires our desires so that over time we grow to look more like Jesus Christ. This is a heart-transforming covenant. Number four, it's a better covenant because it's a relational covenant. Now, some of this is, is the same. In verse 10, where he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the exact same as the, the old covenant. God has always had a heart of relationship. God's not about making these covenants just so he can uh, demonstrate some sort of a complicated project. God is, God is interested in relationship with his people, amen? However, there's, there's something that's different. And again, it relates to that idea of the high priest. In verse 11, he talks about how they'll not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And the point is this, if you want to have relationship with God, you don't need anyone or anything else other than Jesus Christ. You don't need a pastor. You don't need a community group leader. You don't need other Christian friends who are more mature than you to help you get to God. Now, pastors are good. Community group leaders are good. Mature Christian friends are good. We need those people in our lives to teach us and to help guard us and to instruct us. But when it comes to mediating relationship with God, if you've got Jesus, you've got access to God. You've got access to God. So this is a relational covenant where God now interacts with us directly through Jesus Christ. And number five, these better promises include a permanent forgiveness of sins. Verse 12, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. No more. Under the old covenant, the high priest would offer a sacrifice and that forgiveness was good for one year. Your sins are forgiven for one year. Come back next year. And if you keep living, you're just gonna have to keep going every year. Maybe, maybe some of you... Um, are familiar with this idea. When I, was, when I was growing up, I somehow 
accidentally picked up a bad piece of theology. And I'll, I'll refer to it as blank slate theology. Here's, here's how this went in my mind. And this is wrong, by the way. So I'm, I'm giving you a bad example, but this is what I thought. When you come to Jesus, it's like you've got a chalkboard and you've made all sorts of marks on it. And you've got it all dirty. And then you come to Jesus and he wipes the slate clean. And then he hands it back to you and says, now don't you dare get a thing on it. And some of us live with that kind of fear. Oh, God forgave me. He wiped the slate clean, but I've, I've messed up. I've sinned yet again. And now I'm just in, in just too much trouble. Friends, if you're under the blood of Jesus, he wiped the slate clean on the day that you came to him and he continues to wipe the slate clean every hour of every single day because though we fall short in many ways, his grace is greater than our sin. So your forgiveness is permanent. Think about that. Those of you who come in here this morning with guilt, with shame, with frustration, you, you can't believe you did that thing yet again. You can't believe you fell into that same ditch yet again. Believe in Jesus, believe in the gospel. Because of his death on the cross, because of his resurrection, your sins are forgiven. And you don't need to make amends in order to be forgiven by God. You don't need to pay penance in order to be forgiven by God. There are, there are many good things that we can do, but it, it's nothing that earns our forgiveness. You have the forgiveness of God. Are you hearing me on this church? Are you hearing the difference between a, a works-based motivation versus a, a grace-based motivation? Your, your forgiveness is permanent. It's given to us by God. Now, let me close with this thought. I want to close with this thought. We have a better covenant. We have a new and a better covenant. And, and, and I think in many ways, Christianity is full of these tensions like we've talked about. On one hand, Christianity is a very anchored faith. We're supposed to have monuments. If you guys were here in January, remember I taught from the book of Joshua. We talked about setting up stones of remembrance where we really remember what God has done. But if we're not careful, we can get stuck there and we can always just talk about the good old days. Oh, remember what God used to do? Remember what God did do? And yet we're called to be moving forward and seeking God for the, the new things he has for us in the future. When God does new things in our lives, first of all, they're never on the same level as this. God's never gonna give another new covenant in the blood of his son. That's kind of a once for all deal. However, God is always doing new things in the lives of his people and in the lives of his churches. And I just was thinking, what if the, the first century Christians, what if the people that the letter of Hebrews was written to, what if they hadn't said yes? What if they'd said, you know what, God? We're really, we're really pretty comfortable with this first covenant you gave to us. I mean, I know you're talking to us about this new covenant, but that sounds hard. It sounds new. It sounds scary. It sounds different. We'd rather just kind of hang back and enjoy the, the covenant that you made with Moses. How, how disastrous would that have been, church? How disastrous would that be? Even for us, we would be feeling the ramifications of that still to this day, wouldn't we? I'm really grateful that God did the work in these people's hearts to say, yes, we will embrace this new covenant that God has given to us in Jesus. And so I simply ask you today, what new thing is God calling you forward into that you are resistant to? Because it's scary, because it's unfamiliar. For some of you, you're, you're, you're not Christians and you think you have an okay way of relating to God. You, you've maybe made up some sort of arrangement or some sort of agreement on your own, but I'm here to tell you today that this covenant that God is offering you in Jesus is better than any arrangement or agreement you can come up with on your own. And I'm offering to you, I'm inviting you on behalf of Jesus to lay aside the old way that you've tried to deal with your guilt, the old way that you've tried to deal with your feelings of insecurity, the old way that you've tried to make sure that you know that you're okay with God and take Jesus up on his offer. Yeah, it's scary. Surrendering is always scary. But I'm telling you, when you surrender to this Savior, he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your heart. He knows what you need. You can trust him. And the blessings far outweigh any of the sacrifices that you will be called to make. Trust yourself to Jesus. Give yourself to him. I plead with you. Some of you are Christians. 
You've been Christians for a while. You've gotten comfortable to a, a certain lifestyle. You've gotten comfortable in a certain pattern in church attendance or church participation, but God's actually calling you to something newer in your life. Maybe there's new relationships that God wants you to invest in. Maybe you've always been the one being mentored and God's asking you to start mentoring someone else. Maybe you're the one that always comes to church and lets others serve you and God's calling you to step into a place of service and ministry where you now are able to help and be a blessing to others. Whatever it is, what's God calling you forward into and what are you resistant to that you need to say yes to Jesus and not yes to your fears? I don't know what, what this looks like for you. There's probably a thousand different points of application. I simply want to put before you that what God has for us in the future is always newer and always better and always greater because at the end of the story, it says that there's an eternal weight of glory awaiting us. Thank God for his new covenant Thank God that he didn't just set up the one temporary covenant and say, well, that's good enough. No, he, he called us to something newer, better in Christ Jesus. And now in Christ Jesus, what individual things and what for us as a church is God calling us toward? Church, we can trust him. We can trust him. And so it's in line with that that I wanna invite us now to a time of response. We're gonna respond to Jesus, church. We're gonna respond in, in a few ways. The first way we're gonna respond is through the giving of our tithes and our offerings. As the financial stewards come forward, I would even say some of you, maybe this is a new thing that God's calling you to. You've never given money to a church for whatever reason. Maybe you feel like I can't trust the church. Maybe you think I don't have enough money to give. Whatever the reason might be, maybe God's inviting you to uh, obey him and to follow him in this practice. And so I simply wanna make that invitation. If you're a guest or a visitor, please don't feel obligated or, or pressured to give, but I do wanna invite you to give as an act of worship to God. And while they're collecting the offering, let me go over a few discussion questions, things for us to talk about this week in our community groups and in our homes. Number one, even though we might wish that Jesus was physically present on earth today, why is it better for us that he's in heaven? Number two, why is the new covenant under Christ so much better than the first covenant under Moses? What reasons does Jeremiah give and what other reasons does the New Testament give? By the way, the, the list of five that I share with you today is not exhaustive. The Bible would speak in other places of other benefits of this new covenant. Number three, how can we be thankful for past things while still being open to new and better things that God has for us in the future? How can we help each other walk out that tension? And then number four, be honest and vulnerable. What past things, maybe even good things, might keep you stuck and how is God asking you to respond? By the way, uh, let me just say this. You don't have to be a quote unquote old person to be stuck in your ways. I've had conversations with people in their 20s and 30s that reminisce just like people in their 60s and 70s about the way things used to be. I'm like, you're 24 years old. You're not allowed to have opinions like that, right? <laughs> Sometimes we can, we can get stuck in those things in the past. And so I just wanna encourage you, be open, allow God to bring those things to your mind, allow people, friends who know you well to speak into your life in that area. And a couple things to pray about because we love to be a people of prayer as well. Number one, just praise and thank God for his perfect new covenant in Jesus. How many of you are thankful that we have a new covenant in Jesus? We're not relating to him through the temporary old covenant, but we're part of this new covenant. We have much to be thankful for. We have much to praise him about. And so let's rejoice in that. And number two, pray that God would keep us open as individuals in a church to new and better things that he has for us in the future. And we're gonna celebrate the Lord's table. The Lord's table is a commemoration of the new covenant that's written in his blood. So today, as we take the bread and, and the cup and we receive these emblems of his body broken and his blood spilled out, I pray that you would be rejoicing that God has invited you to relate to him through this new covenant. If you're not a Christian, I would offer for you to abstain from the table or even better, give your sin to Jesus, trust in him and come join us at the table because we would love to see new brothers and sisters added to the family of God, new people taking God up on his offer of this new covenant written in Jesus' blood. And we're gonna sing. Sean and the band is gonna lead us in a time of singing and rejoicing in the God of this great new covenant. And so I'd like to invite you to stand if you would, and I'll pray and we'll begin our time of singing in response. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who has always had a plan to rescue and redeem us for your glory and for our good. God, we thank you that though each and every one of us have been guilty of breaking your covenants a thousand times, 
that God, your, your grace is a thousand times more merciful than that. God, I ask and pray today for anyone here who has not yet trusted in you, would you give them that faith to believe in Jesus, to trust that their sins can be forgiven? God, for those of us who are already Christians but who struggle, God, would you help us to know the permanency of our salvation in Jesus and to be able to rejoice knowing that we belong to God and knowing that our sins are forgiven once and for all. Help us to lift our voices and our hearts and our hands right now in worship to God and in praise to our great high priest, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.